Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and I am really scared of being kidnapped. I'm Cameron, and I hate enclosed spaces. I'm Aaliyah, and I am terrified of the plague. So this week, we have Karen M. McManus here to chat with us. She's the author of One of Us is Lying, which has spent 63 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It has been Yay. translated into 38 languages and optioned for a TV, ser- a TV series by the E! Network. Her second book, Two Can Keep a Secret, comes out in January. Tell us about your books. Yes. Yeah, so One of Us is Lying, I like to call The Breakfast Club with Murder. It is about five students who go into detention, but only four of them come out. And the fifth was the creator of the school's notorious gossip app. So when investigators learn that he was about to spill secrets on the other four, they go from being witnesses to potential suspects in his murder and have to figure out what really happened in that room and is one of them lying. And then Two Can Keep a Secret, my second book, um, in that book, history threatens to repeat itself in a small town known for disappearing girls. So there are two main characters in this. One of them, her, Ellery, her mom's twin sister disappeared um, like 20 years ago. The other is a boy named Malcolm, whose brother is the primary suspect in a more recent murder. And then a third person disappears and they were the last one to see her alive. So they're trying to figure out what is going on in this town. I'm so excited for this book. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm like, I'm talking to Karen McManus. Maybe she can give me an arc. Probably not. I bet those are hard to come by. <laughs> Which, though? You're holding one. I'm giving one away on Instagram. All right. Everybody enter. <laughs> so that's coming out this coming January. Is that right? Yeah, January 8th. Okay. I'm super excited. So we're talking about YA thrillers and um, how to write them or at least some elements that help in writing them and things that are very common to the genre. Um, And I think that a lot of the things we're going to talk about are things that you can apply to other genres as well, because there are things like thriller pacing or the ability to make your, um, your audience feel frightened or to feel like the story is moving forward and things like that, that are very common in the thriller genre are also very helpful to have in other genres. Thrillers are on the rise right now. And I mean, there are tons in the YA genre. There are a bunch that have come out this year or are about to come out this year. I think when Karen was talking to me about this, she mentioned um, the cheerleaders and people like us, White Rabbit, Monday's Not Coming, Truly Devious, all of this is true, Sadie. Yep, just came out last month and hit the New York Times bestseller list. So that was exciting. Courtney Summers is a fantastic author. And she, um, I think, I feel like she's sort of always been writing thrillers, but they were maybe never called that. Um, but they always had a mystery element or a suspense element to her story. And then it all came together beautifully in Sadie. So you mentioned that you were surprised that One of Us is Lying was categorized as a thriller. I was. Um, when I wrote it, I thought of it as a mystery, just straight mystery. Um, because when I thought of thrillers, I thought of a lot of action. And I thought like ticking clock. And there were just certain elements I thought had to be there if something was going to be called a thriller. But the category has broadened in recent years. And so things that we maybe previously would have said were straight mysteries or 
suspense or a psychological thriller, you know, which is less action oriented, are now kind of all under that broad category of thriller. And I think that's, you know, a good thing for the genre overall, because it encompasses more voices and encompasses more ways of telling a story. And it gets more, you know, sort of overall visibility for for that style of writing, which does at the heart of it, you know, have some kind of problem to be solved there. There is typically, you know, some pretty quick pacing that you're trying to get through the story. You know, you've definitely got your, uh, a lot of suspense, you've got some cliffhangers, you've got, uh, you know, some action in, in some of the books, not so much in mine, although I tried to put a little bit more into the second one, but they're very different. And I think we've seen a lot of that diversity in 2018. Which is so great that the publishers are willing to take a risk on books that don't necessarily fit into to what a thriller was like 10 years ago, I guess, or even two years ago, yeah. which I think your book has been a big part of. Isn't that right? Well, you know, I think um, We Were Liars um, back in 2014 really kicked off a lot of interest in the thriller genre. And that's another one that I maybe wouldn't have called a thriller, but it's definitely psychological suspense and there's a mystery involved. And that was really influential to me when I was writing and when I was querying, I comped it because it was like the book, you know, it was one of the only books that everybody knew, at least in in terms of a a mystery with like first person POV and four main characters, kind of like mine. So that was big. And then, but I think my book did kind of, because it has made a, a, a lot of international sales, it's kind of risen, uh, raised the visibility of the genre overall. And there was more interest in, you know, thrillers as a whole um, in some of the recent international fairs, which is great because I think these are the kind of books that do translate well. Everybody loves suspense. Everybody likes to be scared. So another thing I was thinking is that things like the podcast serial, and I mean, that's had such great success. And Sadie is set up like a podcast, isn't it? Yeah. I haven't read all of it yet, but it's got like a narrator and it's supposed to be a podcast, which I thought that was such an interesting format for a book. There's so many people taking mm. risks. It's so exciting. Yeah, it alternates between, you know, a first person narration by Sadie, who's tracking her sister's killer, and a podcast um, by uh, a man who, you know, became interested in the case and is now, you know, sort of down the road later trying to figure out what happened to Sadie. And it is really well done. And I think the book was marketed really well too. They actually did a podcast and it's so good. (laughs) It sounds exactly like you think it would sound. Awesome. I didn't even know that. I'll have to go look. That's really cool. So we've talked a little bit about how thriller as a genre is kind of taking off right now. But in your experience, what would you say makes writing a thriller for young adults different than a thriller for adults? For adults, yeah. So there's a few things that I think make it different. Um, young adult thrillers are centered around friendship dynamics a lot, you know, because that's a really important part of the teen experience. Sometimes it's about when friendships go bad, like Little Monsters by Kara Thomas or See All the Stars by Kit Frick, which came out this year. And other times the friendships might be a positive force in bringing about a resolution to whatever the main characters are trying to solve, which you see in One of Us is Lying and also The Cheerleaders by Kara Thomas. I think another difference is that teens just don't have access to the same resources as adults. So the approach a teen takes to solving their problem or investigating their mystery is going to be different from what you see in an adult thriller. You know, it's, it's not a police procedural for one thing. Um, they have to be in school a big chunk of the day. They might not be mobile or, you know, maybe they can't drive or go places autonomously or they have parents hovering over them. So there are lots of additional layers to, um, you know, kind of trying to be active and, you know, proactive in solving the problem in front of you. 
And one other thing that sort of struck me when I was thinking about this question, and this might just be the books that I read recently, but I read a couple of adult thrillers over the summer and I enjoyed them, but I was struck by, at least with these particular books, how not diverse the casts were. And it really contrasted with what I've read lately in young adult. And I just think there's been a lot of work done lately in young adults, the industry overall to support marginalized authors who are telling stories through their own lens. And then also for writers who aren't marginalized to write diverse casts, you know, really thoughtfully and respectfully. And we still have a ways to go, but I feel like we're seeing positive results in YA. I agree. It's it's actually kind of shocking sometimes when you get outside of YA because I'm I'm almost used to it now. I'm like I'm expecting there to be more than just like a, a white male or even white female perspective because YA is so there's so many girls in YA, which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like almost jumping like jumping into cold water when you get into yeah. adult books. <laughs> it's striking when you've been immersed in YA. So let's talk about actually writing a thriller. How do you approach this, do you think, versus other genres when you're actually um like the language and and the way you structure chapters? I know, I know that you write thrillers, so maybe you can't come at it from the perspective of how do you write that differently than another book, but how do you approach it to make it quick and to make it sound like a thriller to you, to propel your reader forward? Make it propulsive. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about thrillers, right? It's supposed to, you're supposed to keep people turning pages. So there's a couple tricks I use to do that. I mean, the great thing about having multiple narrators is that you can take your reader to the edge with one person. And then before you actually reveal something, you switch over and it's time to, you know, check in with the next person. Um, and then you are able to extend things a little bit that way. Um, another way to build tension without necessarily revealing clues is to have a lot of relationship tension, you know, so that might be the will they, won't they romantic kind of tension, or it might be tense sibling relationships or parent relationships, friend relationships, anything where you care about the people involved and you're kind of actively rooting for some kind of outcome, but you're not sure that you're going to get it. Um, so those are, you know, both tricks that, that I use. I think it also helps to have more than one mystery or conflict in play so that you can have lots of little reveals leading up to your big reveal. So in One of Us is Lying, there were a couple different layers of secrets related to each character that came out before we knew what ultimately happened to the fifth student in that room. And in Two Can Keep a Secret, there are like three levels of mystery. There's the big question of why homecoming queens keep disappearing. And then there are two sub-mysteries related to strange happenings around town that might be related or they might not. And then also family secrets for both the main characters. So there's like, you're juggling a lot of balls with a thriller because you're trying to keep momentum going. You're also trying to juggle, you know, this very heavy and dense plot usually with some character development too. And I think sometimes that's where you're challenged because it's hard to do both well. I like what you said about taking the audience to the edge, though. I feel like for me, the thrillers I've enjoyed most have made me the most uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so in your book, you in One of Us is Lying, you do that with all these different character perspectives. As soon as we start to adjust to one and kind of get the lay of the land for them, you switch to a different one. And that's good. That always, for me, has has really increased the tension. It's kind of like a carrot is always dangling in front of me at some level. And when I get the carrot, the author gives me a bigger carrot. So one thing I like that you said was that you're pairing the big mystery with smaller mysteries that have to do with either your character or the community or whatever else. And I feel like that in its core is what makes me like thrillers. 
I just read a whole bunch to prepare for the podcast. So I wouldn't have like nothing to say. (laughs) I do like thrillers, but they're not my go-to all the time. But one of the things that I liked the most was that it wasn't one note. Like the ones that I liked weren't one note. It wasn't just about this main mystery. We always had like the character's backstory, for instance. Like it's not just that we want to find out about who killed who it's it's that we want to find out how the character became the way that they are like having a deep and nuanced character and and mysteries around them is something that really helped me to get into the books i think that that's something you can't get away from in any genre you need to have characters that are deep and interesting and even if they were outside of this book there'd be people you want to read about right even if you threw them into a different plot you know if you had them in a contemporary romance or if you had them fighting aliens (laughs) they still need you still need to feel like they're real people and you care about what happens to them. So there's a, an article that Karen sent to me when we were getting ready for this that I wanted to pull a couple of quotes from and I'll put the actual ardor article in the liner notes so that you can look at it if you want to. It's the more nuanced, flawed, and relatable our hero or anti-hero is, the more terrifying and engrossing their story will feel. That's from John Cusick at Folio Lit. You have to care about the people. You know, your your plot can be amazingly mind-bendingly twisty, but if the people behind it fall flat, then it doesn't hit home the way that you want it to. If you don't care about characters and you don't really care if they solve the mystery or you don't Mm -hmm. care if they come out okay, I think that that's a really hard thing to do with the word count that you have with thrillers, though, because thrillers can't go beyond probably like 60 or 70,000 words. Is that right, Karen? One of us really was published at 91,000. Oh, okay. And so two can keep a secret, right? Um, The first draft was very bare bones and I knew the characters needed work, but I wanted to get it to my editor so she could help me kind of like shape where to take them. So that first draft was 63,000 words and it's going to publish at 85. Well, that's That's good news. A lot, you know, in two rounds of revision. And that is... um, pretty typical for the genre. It is really hard to do deep and nuanced characters and a really complicated mystery, I think, in under 85,000 words. Apparently, I've never done it. (laughs) So I did want to talk about language, actually. And this is something that is different than the way you write. I was reading There's Someone Inside Your House, which is probably more like in the horror genre, really, than thrillers. I think it still fits the category again, because we're broad now. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's definitely got the whole like ticking clock. There's a murderer out there, but it does it has some like slasher elements to it. So, anyway, one of the things that I really noticed about that as I was reading is the language and it's something that I feel like just just creates a sense of foreboding from the very first chapter, which the first chapter is kind of a gut punch anyway, like it's all it sets the tone for the rest of the book. But Starting from the very beginning, the character is talking about this play that she's doing, which is Sweeney Todd. And so she's talking about blood spatter and and about she's describing things in a way or the narrator, not the narrator, but the the POV is using her situation to create a sense of foreboding. She's in this house that's in the middle of a cornfield pretty much all by herself. And the light is going and she's afraid a little bit because there's this egg timer that keeps moving around and it's it's all like nobody else is with her in this scene but stephanie perkins who is not known for writing books like this by the way she writes contemporary romance i know and i loved the change (laughs) she took her awesome voice and put it in a a horror slash thriller book it was awesome but she just uses her language in such a way that i am waiting for somebody to get killed pretty much yeah you definitely 
pulls you in right away with the scare factor. But you don't do that in your book. And so it's not an, it's not necessarily a given that it has to be that way. Yeah, no, I think a lot, of th- a lot of thrillers are, you know, kind of darker in tone. I personally have a light tone, even though I write about dark things. And I tend to use a lot of humor and, you know, I'll typically have a dash of romance and it's cute. Um, and I think that's kind of just my voice. Um, I used to write other non-thrillery books before I got published and other genres. And I sounded like that too. But I do think you have to be tonally appropriate in a thriller. You know, you have to obviously know where to go light and where not to. There are some really serious scenes and chapters where there's a lot of emotional heft that you have to convey. There might be fear that you have to convey. So you have to be able to do that without losing your voice. Um, And that, you know, took me a few rounds in editing to be able to do that and balance it. So you're not like cracking lizard jokes when somebody's running out after you through the forest. <laughs> you save that. You save that for a lighter chapter. <laughs> and so other elements that propel your your story forward. I think that something we kind of talked about a little bit was that you have multiple mysteries going on. But I feel like that gives you a lot of material to misdirect your reader. I think, Aaliyah, were you talking about misdirection? Yeah, I I feel like misdirection works really well on me. I don't know if it's because I'm gullible, but I also think it's because as readers, when we're reading the thriller, we know that the thriller is based around a mystery. So we're trying to solve, we're questioning every detail that in maybe in a different genre, we wouldn't. And so one way to hide that information as the author from your reader without them going crazy is to give them something. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely the hatred is a factor there, is to give them something that they that can satisfy them that may not necessarily be right to just kind of tide them over. But I think with that, as with any misdirection, it's important that it's believable and not, I guess, generic. I I think of like classic cop drama with this. There's always like three suspects that they go through before they find the actual murderer. Right. (laughs) And if they're people who just crop up out of nowhere, then it's less fun than if they're people in the book. And my favorite books are the ones where I'm like, oh, this author didn't do a good job because I totally figured it out in the first chapter. And then the next chapter, I'm like, oh, I didn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's like the best kind of misdirection where I, I believe that I'm smarter than the author until I actually get to the end. <laughs> well, then let's move on to the second part of the podcast where we critique a first chapter from a listener. Just a quick review. When we give our critiques, we try to be non-prescriptive. That means we try to identify problems, but we won't tell you how to fix the problems because that's up to you as nothing. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission, it'll be on our website with our notes. And you can find that litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. So a summary of this chapter. Who wants to do one really quick? Because I didn't write one down. We see this girl and she's living in a trailer. And we find out that her mom has left her. We don't know why. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was. And so she's there with the bo- mom's boyfriend. And he's getting creepy. And she knows that she needs to leave for her safety. Um, and we learn a little bit about where she came from and where she wants to go. So this um, when it was sent to us was labeled as a suspense slash mystery. And so when I was looking at it, I was thinking about it in terms of what I like in a suspense slash mystery book in the first chapter. Something I liked right off, right at the beginning, the main character starts describing uh, her mom's boyfriend, but she names him Rat. And later we find on that 
I find out that's not his real name, just what she calls him. Naming a character Rat carried a lot of weight with it, and it made me dislike him instantly. So I think that was very good characterization there. It's not even just Rat. It's like the Rat. (laughs) He's not even a person. (laughs) And he has all these nasty details. Like he has a a little tiny greasy braid or something dangling from his neck. And Definitely got a very strong sense of him and high creep factor there. I also thought the setting was really well done. You know, I definitely could visualize the trailer, the weather, the surrounding area, all of that, you know, felt really well established. And I thought um, some personal dreams and goals of the main character were also introduced. And, um, you know, you got a good sense that her music was important to her, that it was kind of a shared family interest, that it's going to be important to the story. Um, And, you know, with the rat, you have this clear sense of conflict and a problem that needs to be solved. So I thought all those were positive. I'll agree with that. There were a lot of really nice, vivid descriptions. Um, A line I particularly liked was when she talks about the lacy ice on the windows of rat's ancient trailer was as much on the inside as it was on the outside. A line I really liked about the rat actually was that something in his eyes reminded Hope of Hope is the name of the character of a hungry cat without her mother. She was fresh meat, which if you think about a young girl living in a trailer with her mother's boyfriend, it's really, really creepy. I really liked the line magic green erased every sign of man if you gave it enough time because it's in the Pacific Northwest. And that is exactly how the Pacific Northwest feels to me. It's like green is going to crawl up all over everything. And I love it. Yeah, very vivid. And I I really understand why she left. And so I was on board with her motivation. I liked too how Hope is kind of describing the decay that has set into this trailer and just all these things that are broken. And she mentions there's a whole in the floor that they just keep covered up and it's always been there. And then I don't know if this spoils the submission, but she actually ends up escaping through that hole. So I thought that was a nice use of the scenery that had been built. I liked how the, over the course of the chapter, it kind of settles into just how bad the situation is. And that like, it doesn't lead with the fact that she had to cover up a hole in the middle of the floor with plywood, because that's not something that would be notable to her because it's, it's familiar to her, but it comes up later um, when it becomes important. And at the same time, it's kind of like, well, yeah, this is her life. And then you as the reader, she's like, you get the sense that it's not trying to rope you in with the shock value, but you still get, you know, a sense of just how bad it is. All right, then let's move on to things that might need a second look. I know for me, the descriptions were really good, and I definitely feel like I want to have them at some point. But it did kind of make the start of the book a little heavy to learn kind of her history with her grandma and why the guitar is named the way it's named and all of Rat's backstory, though it really was good at characterizing him. I almost felt like maybe that would be more appropriate in a third chapter or later on throughout the book. I agree. I felt like especially for the genre. And if it's not like it doesn't necessarily need to fit exactly into genre guidelines. But I feel like that sort of book, I really need a hook to get me to keep moving forward in the story. And in this story, she has a problem. And she escapes. And while I'm kind of curious to know whether she's worried about being homeless or like not finding her mom again, and stuff like that, I didn't get those feelings from the character herself. And I didn't have like a reason to continue following her into the second chapter. I feel like the the biggest scary thing that would have made me continue reading was resolved in the first chapter. She's gone. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. I was kind of struck by two things that I think are related. I thought there was a lot of telling, you know, versus showing. And then there was also a lot or a lack of tension. And one example of how those intersect is 
our how we the reader experience the rat you know other other than her descriptions of him her telling us what he's like what he looks like what he says what he does we don't really see that directly other than through a conversation he has with hope through the door so because we don't see it unfold in real life it made me feel sort of removed from her and removed from the danger that she's facing and then ultimately kind of removed from her as a character. So I thought there was there were instances of the that scattered throughout where we were just being told things and it would have been really interesting maybe to see an action. Even though a few hours pass over the course of this chapter, but really nothing happens but her waiting. Something else that I mean people got to the notes before I did. So they wrote down everything that I thought too. But one thing that I felt like slowed the chapter down, especially was that there were repeats of descriptions and her own thoughts and feelings. I have them marked. And so you can go look at them on the submission, just some of the ones that stood out the most to me. But especially in a, a first chapter where that's like prime territory, where if you're trying to get an agent or an editor to really take your book seriously, if you're repeating things like I'm going to have to look in the notes. But there, if you're repeating things over and over, um, it's really hard to take your writing seriously. I mean, I can throw an example. So I, I really thought like the the constant repetition talking about the Celtic music and how much it meant to her was great in terms of telling us, like informing us about what matters to the character. But it's always the same phrase, Celtic music, every time. There's never, there's not like any iteration on it to give us more like additional information every time it's brought up. It's always just the Celtic music. I, I had an example too, because I do think repetition is something to work on in the chapter. We learn about the, the mom's relationship history, both in general and with the rat at the very beginning of the chapter. And then she leaves and then we learn more about it. And that really disrupted the pacing for me. You know, it's sort of like we get to some action, she does something and then she goes right back to thinking thoughts that she's kind of already thought. I mean, there's some new nuances to it, but it's not things that we have to know right now. So that disrupted where you want to build, you know, it kind of pulled you right back and slowed you down. I'll second that. I think for me, and this kind of builds on a lot of the comments. Another thing I had a hard time with was not really being sure what Hope's plan was once she did escape. That made it hard for me to feel the tension because it kind of did feel like when she escaped, everything was was wonderful again, and maybe she'll go find her mom, but I wasn't quite clear. I feel like part of that problem for me was because I felt really distant from how she was feeling. We got a lot of backstory in this. A lot of it was just describing the situation she was in, like we've said a couple of times. We should take our own advice about repetition. But the revisions. <laughs> yeah. We can edit all this. But I I didn't actually know how she felt about stuff. Like I knew Mm -hmm. some of the things from language, like the way she described the rat, it was obvious how she felt about him, but I don't know how she feels about her mom. Like she says she loves to hear her mom sing. But aside from that, her mom has abandoned her and she doesn't have any thoughts or feelings about that. She's abandoned her in like a pedophile's trailer and she doesn't actually say anything or think anything about Mm -hmm. that. I, I wasn't really sure how she felt about any of the situation other than that she wanted to leave. Yeah, I wondered if it might be starting in the wrong place. A lot of times when there's lots of telling in a chapter, it's because you're setting up a story that maybe you're not ready to actually tell yet. And you need to maybe show Hope living her life before she leaves it. Or you show her, you know, doing something so we get a better sense of who she is before she, you know, makes this big break. Or you show her with her family so that we understand why she's, what she really thinks about them. Maybe not, you know, maybe 
if you kind of fix some of the other issues we talked about, this is exactly the right place to start. But so often first chapters don't start in the right place, you know, and I've rewritten my own first chapter many times for both of my books. So that's something to consider too, is that maybe this just isn't the right place for the story to begin. I feel like first chapters are like the last thing you write. <laughs> yeah, because you don't really know the story, you know, until you told it. And then you go back and you realize how it was supposed to start. I think that first drafts are you telling yourself the story, you know, and then through revision, you actually tell a story that will engage and interest a reader. I think that's true. All of my first drafts are awful and nobody ever sees them. <laughs> so that's how I feel. I have super picky comments, like running into like small little things. Small little things take me out of a story, you know? So these were a couple things where I sort of went, hmm, what? It didn't totally ring true to me that Hope wouldn't know what, and I'll probably say this word wrong. It was Makushla, um, which is a, a nickname that her grandmother had for her. And it's also what she named her guitar. And I Googled it, you know, and I knew what it meant in a minute. So I thought, surely she would have done that at some point if this is something her beloved grandmother called her. So that sort of struck me as being a little bit confusing. And then um, there was a use of middle names for both Hope and her mom, which is not something we typically get in the first introduction of a character. And I thought the names are probably meaningful because they were proper nouns. Um, they seemed interesting. There's probably a story behind them, but... I don't know the story and I probably don't need to know it yet. So little things like that kind of took me out of the flow of what I was reading. You know, look for things that don't quite fit, you know, that again, you might be putting in there because you sort of want to note it, but it probably doesn't belong there. Mm -hmm. There's so much room in a book to put details in later. They don't have to go in the first chapter. Yeah. My first chapters are always ridiculous amounts of exposition. Just like, Again, you know, me telling you everything you I think you need to know. In fact, I did a workshop um, with a, a writing class a little while ago, and I showed them my first description, the way I wrote the character of Addie and one of us is lying. And it was like three paragraphs long. Everything I felt you needed to know about Addie, her mom, her sister, her boyfriend, and then what ultimately became the introduction of Addie. And it was two sentences because that was all you needed to know at the time. But me telling myself the story, I shoved everything in there and then realized I could actually spread that out over like seven chapters. <laughs> <laughs> that is really hard to do or to notice in yourself. But yeah, that is awesome advice right there. Okay, well, um, if we don't have any other thoughts, then let's wrap things up for today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Karen. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Please go check out One of Us is Lying and look for Two Can Keep a Secret in January because I haven't read Two Can, Can Keep a Secret yet. But One of Us is Lying is awesome. And I'm definitely on the pre-order list for <laughs> Two Can Keep a Secret. Yeah. Our guest for the next episode will be Ben Grange, agent at the L. Perkins Agency. Submissions will open on Thursday. So if you'd like a first chapter critique from him, then get it to us before October 18th. If you have submitted for Ben to critique your work before, but you weren't chosen, you can always submit again, by the way. Remember, this is both a video and a podcast, so you can either watch us on YouTube or you can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and a comment. It helps others to find the show. If you would like to ask us questions or tell us how awful we are or how amazing we are, either way is fine. You can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast. For Lit Service, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>